1 through 7 for tonight. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he he went and washed, came back seeing. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, brothers and sisters in Christ. When a person receives a new heart, as we've prayed for in uh, the congregational prayer just a moment ago, uh, when a person receives a new heart from the Lord, they understand the world in entirely different terms than they regularly have before. Uh, the eyes of their hearts are opened, and they interpret the world differently than they had before. And beyond that, uh, what happens when the Lord gifts someone with a new heart, they start to occupy, not only do they see the world totally differently, they start to occupy that very world that they see differently in, in a way that they haven't before. They're, as Paul will say in uh, the book of Philippians, uh, they, they have upon them an upward call of God in Christ. Right? Um, Second Corinthians, they, they walk by faith and not by sight. They march to a different drumbeat than the one that the world itself produces. Well, here in this passage uh, that we uh, just read in just a moment ago, we see three different characters who, as it were, they have drastically different uh, vantage points about the world in which they were born. One of the, these people, uh, the disciples, we can almost lump them uh, together as their own character, uh, one of them is the disciples who operate with a certain, uh, dare I say, kind of elementary uh, level of an understanding of suffering in, in this age. And then there's Jesus who we can say is the Lord of sufferers. He's the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, uh, as one from whom men hide their faces. Uh, Jesus, who, by the way, from the moment of his conception all the way to his death and is being under the power of death for a time and is being buried for three days, uh, is, is that, that, entire, uh, that, that, that entire span of time is what we know as the state of his humiliation. Uh, so he has a, a drastically different understanding of, of suffering, uh, especially in this, uh, this passage here, because he's the Lord of those who suffer. And then we have the blind man here, uh, who for his entire life had endured suffering in some fashion, uh, all the way from the moment he was born, all that to be ended on this very day. And he certainly, certainly his perspective of, of, of life And the world, therefore, had changed drastically from that point on. For the remainder of his life, he can now do something that most of us, we take for granted. He can see. And there's a reason why this story is here. There's a reason why Jesus does this for the man, just like there's a reason why Jesus heals the paralytic that's at the 
pool of Bethesda and John chapter 5. There's a reason why Jesus heals that man. There's a reason why Jesus heals the official son in John chapter 4. There's a reason why he does these signs, as John refers to them by, that shows something more uh, profound about the totality of his ministry, well beyond even the miracle the work that's being done itself that we just uh, just read. And for tonight, I want, that one, I want that to be the focus of the sermon tonight. That's what we're going to be paying uh, attention to for most of our time tonight. This is the sixth of seven signs that Jesus does within his ministry uh, before the crucifixion story in the Gospel of John. And there's reasons for this number, and there's reasons why John... Uh, writes them that we're going to be going over, and with the Lord's help, uh, we'll be able to recognize a little bit more of the work of Christ and how this spills over to the Christian life. And so the theme for this evening is uh, printed in your bulletin that when Jesus heals uh, the man who was born blind, he displays the works of God. That should be plural right there. I don't know why it's singular. He displays the works of God that that, that, he will eventually display to all uh, of those who call upon his name. That's what we're going to be looking at. When Jesus heals the man who was born blind, he displays the works of God that he's eventually going to display in everyone who calls upon his name. And as we typically do when we come up with, uh, to these sign miracles in the Gospel of John, we'll be looking at the sign of Jesus healing the man born blind with these three points. Number one, the setting of the sign. Number two, the performing of the sign. Number three, the meaning of the sign. And so we, for the first point, we come to verse one, where again we're reminded of Uh, The events of the previous chapter, chapter 8, where Jesus is fielding some accusations uh, about him and and against him, just like, again, with chapter 5. He heightens the claims that he makes of himself when it was convenient for him to not do that. In other words, he's, he's put to a number of questions in chapter 8, if you remember that, uh, that passage. And at the very point at which he could very easily have bounced out of those, those accusations and those questions, if he would only concede to the religious elite, if he, could, if he would only tell them what they want to hear, if he can only tell them that he's actually a nobody, what would have happened to him probably is he'd just get a slap on the wrist and they'd let him go. But he, being true to himself, and by the way, every time that the Lord Jesus is true to himself, he's true to you as well. He's true to you. So he, being true to himself... He tells the truth about himself. The last thing that Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 57, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at him, and he went out of the temple. And as I read it, this is somewhat of a disputed thing in the commentaries. As I read it in verse 1, as he passed by out of the temple, he saw a man blind from birth. And now people uh, like this man, who is in such a poor condition like this, would be reduced to begging as the only real functional way in which they can get around in that day and age. That's the only functional means by which they can support themselves, and that's, of course, what, they see, what we see him doing here. He's been blind since birth, and based upon what else this, the, the, the passage says in verse 23 about his age, and about his ability to testify about himself, we can easily tell that he's had this condition for a very long time. And then added to his humiliation, it was compounded 
even more by a very popular sentiment that was in his day that even the disciples uh, buy into as well. You see this uh, in verse 2. This is uh, what the question comes from, from his disciples who ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, you would think that a casual reading of the book of Job would be enough to kind of take care of their assumptions about this man, don't you? You'd think that, uh, that, that they would uh, look at that passage in the Old Testament and know not to ask a question like this, because this is virtually the same sentiment, this is virtually the same idea that's going on with Job's friends, who, by the way, were great counselors until they started speaking. If you remember that, uh, that story, yeah, Job, you, you know, all this is happening to you most likely because you did something wrong. You did something bad, and that's why. You know, Job, if you hadn't sinned, that, that's really the problem. If you hadn't sinned, God wouldn't be doing this to you, and that's, that's why all this bad stuff is happening. And that's essentially what the uh, disciples, that's the mentality that the disciples take upon themselves. Now, I don't think I have to say this, but I'm going to. Not only is this terrible counsel, please don't ever give anybody counsel like that. Not only is that a terrible thing to say to someone when they're suffering, it's also wrong. It fails miserably on multiple levels, not the least of which is that it makes the person the sole arbiter of the will of God based upon something outside of his prescribed will. In other words, I can know what the will of God is for your life based solely upon my perspective of your circumstances. That's how I know the will of God, essentially, is the mentality uh, that's, that's at play there. Bad stuff is happening in your life. Don't worry. I'll swoop in and tell you exactly what God says about it because I feel this way about this. In effect, the evaluator becomes the judge. And it doesn't even consider, this mentality here, doesn't even consider the fact that God is still our God, even in the midst of suffering. Even during the times of suffering and malady, as we see here, uh, this means that this mentality cheapens both the suffering and the nearness of God to a person in their suffering if we have a mentality like this. That's what they're assuming uh, upon in this question. We can go on uh, a lot, but we can see that, the, that their question in verse 2 is based and founded upon very shaky assumptions. And Jesus understands this, which we can see in the following verse, verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now notice the Lord Jesus, uh, his, his approach, his tack here. He avoids their blunder of a question, if we can call it that, by correcting their assumptions about the justice of God and the providence of God. John Calvin says that with regard to human suffering, that God sometimes has another object in view other than strictly and simply to punish sin. And Jesus can here say what that object is right here. He says that this isn't a result of sin, but so that people would be there to see the works of God on full display. 
And then in the next verse, what does he do? He, he pushes that outward a, a little bit more. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so what he's saying to his disciples uh, reverberates throughout time to us even nowadays. What he's saying to them, to them there is that they are to take full advantage of his ministry while they are still with him. As long as he's in the world that is in the body before the crucifixion, they're to take every opportunity that they can to recognize the works of God that are on full display right in front of them. And we can fast forward this in our understanding of the New Testament. With New Testament eyes, we can understand that it's, it's, it's not as though after the crucifixion, he's no longer going to be the light of the world. Uh, right? Like, okay, now, now the, the, the death and burial and resurrection, okay, that's when he stopped. No, that's not what, uh, what's meant here. Uh, we, can, uh, we know that particularly uh, at the ascension and the giving of the Spirit, that the works of God are still on display even to nowadays. We just prayed for one of them uh, just a moment ago. And we can say that this responsibility to recognize the works of God is pushed out to us even to this very day. Uh, more on this a little bit later, but this is the basic setting of the sign. Again, the man has uh, been in this poor condition for a very long time, uh, at least 25 years according to my understanding of this, uh, this event. Uh, he's noticed by the disciples who have this wrong assumption about why he's there, and then Jesus answers them. Uh, We move on to our next point, the performing of the sign then. And we notice that firstly that in the performing of the sign, that it's drawn naturally from these words that we just looked at. It's drawn naturally from verses, particularly verses 4 and 5. It's drawn naturally uh, from that that, that, that is because of his continued work, and because he is the light of the world, It's his delight to do things like what he's about to do. And it's incumbent upon uh, his followers to take full advantage of everything that they're experiencing in his ministry. In other words, he's giving them a purpose statement at the outset of the performing of the sign, which makes for us a very interesting point of comparison uh, to the other signs that we've looked at thus far, because this is the very first sign miracle that Jesus does in the Gospel of John where he does this. This is the first of the signs that Jesus does in which he says something to indicate something that he is about to do. And the other signs up to this point, he gives various commands to people. Uh, he tells the, uh, the, the, the person in John chapter 2, just go fill up some jars full of water. He tells the official, just go back down to your house. Right? He gives various commands to these, uh, these people without any notice that there's ever going to be anything miraculous, any, any miraculous intervention done uh, in obedience to these commands. But for this one and the last one in chapter 11, he gives instruction before he performs this sign, which I think is for a number of reasons, which draws our attention to this sign as a miracle that stands out to us as it did to the man's friends and his neighbors here. But we read about the performing of the sign in verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And with this says the first step of the performing of the sign, a few things stand out to us. Firstly, that this comes as a shock in and of itself, right? Because it involves 
something as, as common and, dare I say, objectionable as saliva. In this day, saliva would be something that everybody knows, that everybody has, but it's uncouth for it to be projected outward. You know what I mean by that? I mean, it's, that's kind of understandable because, I mean, we can kind of relate to that with, uh, with, with our own culture. Uh, we also know of two similar events in the Gospel of Mark where the healing miracles of Jesus involve his saliva, and that comes out there as well. So firstly, it's a shock, that the, that the shock and awe factor that Jesus would, would use his, his spit, his saliva, uh, in, in, in the healing of this, uh, this man. Secondly, is that the details of the story is itself laden with gospel-saturated irony. Uh, Think about this for a second. Jesus, the one who was sent from his father, he sent the man to go wash at the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So you're seeing a gospel, uh, a gospel saturated irony with with this. And I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus explains things beforehand, and so he draws where, where our attention is drawn to this very uh, miracle. Because in this sign, you get a, a a a picture of the fulsomeness of his redemptive work as a whole. This man couldn't see without being sent to wash, and he couldn't be sent there without Jesus first having been sent to him. And the work that's done in him is full, it's complete, it's lacking nothing. And so you get this gospel-laden, saturated irony laden within this this story. The third thing that pops out to us uh, beyond the, uh, dare we say, allegorical flow of the story that we notice is that for all the impact of the miracle itself, and, and for all that's now altered this man's life from this moment onward, for all of the power that's involved in giving this, this man's sight, it's presented to us here and uh, throughout the entire chapter as rather simple, um, not very complicated, complete, but a rather simple fact. We see this in verse 7. Verse 7 simply says, So he went and washed and came back seeing. You know, it's like, here's the facts. What more, what more do you want? You know, the, the guy washed, he... He went and washed and came back seeing, right? It's only just a few words in, in, in the original language. Nothing uh, more to this. You know, what else do you want? Uh, there, there's no recounting of you know, his journey from the temple all the way to the Pool of Siloam, give or take 700 yards or so. Uh, no progress report, no doctor's report about his eyes after the healing. Nothing like that, almost like Naaman. In Second Kings chapter 5, he goes down, he washes, and he's healed. What, what more do you want? At the same time, it's earth-shattering, and yet simple. It's altering, it's life-altering, and yet it's complete. He went and washed and came back seeing. And I think this is one of the reasons, another one of the reasons why it's presented to us uh, so simply. It's to force our attention off of the miracle itself. And that's what these signs do. It forces our our attention, as powerful as this miracle was, it's presented to us uh, very simply, very matter-of-factly. And that's because the work itself, as powerful as it is, the text wants us to acknowledge that it's there, acknowledge that it is a miracle, 
but focus our attention off, uh, off of it onto something else. This is a typical thing for the signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Jesus will do something, and it'll stand for something beyond itself. And so what's the meaning of the sign? What's being communicated through this? And this is our last point for us tonight, the meaning of the sign. As, and, and as always, uh, there's a lot that this sign means. There's a lot that's, uh, that's being given to us here. I can only give just a few uh, for us tonight. Otherwise, we'd be here for another three hours. Firstly, what does this sign mean? It's that we can say that it's meant to, you, to tell you as the believer to be reminded of the start of your journey in Christ. It's to tell you to be reminded of the start of your journey in Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ who gives you sight is simple as it is complete. It's earth-shattering, and yet it's very matter-of-fact. Uh, we'll see this later on in the chapter. Once I was blind, now I see. What more do you want? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is as life-altering and as simple as that. Here, we're reminded that what got us into the door of the invisible church, as it were, is the simple old adage, we are great sinners. But Jesus He is the perfect Savior. All we bring to him is our sin. What does he do with it? He removes it from us and he gives to us his righteousness. All we bring to him is our blindness. And what does he do? He gives us new eyes with which to see. It's firstly a reminder to the Christian to remember where it is that you came from. It's to tell us that no matter what your station in life is, no matter what your situation is, no matter your position Remember your origins in Christ, lest you think too highly of yourself and forget where your ability to see comes from. It's here to give us a dose of naive simplicity. Without the Spirit, we would remain blind. The story is meant to induce a deep appreciation of the work of Christ because like Jesus with this blind beggar, Jesus owes nothing to us in order for us to see in the first place And yet, he was sent for us. He owes nothing to us, and yet he is sent for us. Furthermore, we're going to get into this in a later sermon. It's here to warn us as well at the very same time that just in case it is that we think too highly of ourselves, we are therefore de facto compared to everybody else in this story, everybody else around this guy, filled with pride and elitism, and God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, 1 Peter 5. And as we go on through the story, you get the impression that this guy right here is the only one who is actually able to see everybody else as blind as a bat. And beyond that, he was able to, to refute the religious elite by his simple adherence to the work of Christ. And that's what this story tells us, firstly, that you, the believer, are to be reminded, once again, where you came from lest you think too highly of yourself. Secondly, it's meant to be yet another attestation that Jesus is a better Moses. It's to be another attestation in the, uh, in, in the exegesis of the Gospel of John that Jesus is a better Moses and leads a greater exodus for the people of God. And for this, we're, we're reminded of the purpose for the signs in the Gospel of John in the first place. We've been saying that the signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John are a response uh, in some way to the signs of Moses 
in the Exodus. And what was the second to last sign of Moses in the Exodus? Darkness across the land. Darkness for the Egyptians. What's the second to last sign with Jesus? Giving sight to the man born blind. There in Exodus, light is taken away. Here, light is given. And you can see that in Christ, we have a better leader for the people of God, obtaining a better outcome for the people of God with, as Hebrews says, better promises attached to it. And interestingly enough, if you understand where the, the plagues in, in Exodus, uh, Exodus 10 verse 21, it says that Moses, uh, the sign with Moses was a darkness that was to be felt. And so too in this sign of Jesus, we similarly see throughout the chapter, this is a giving of light that certainly has an impact upon like literally everybody in in this chapter, from the guy's friends and neighbors to the uh, religious elite, the guy's uh, parents themselves, and then back to the religious elite. The man receiving his sight has a profound impact upon everybody else. Meanwhile, the guy is there attesting again to the simplicity of this miracle. And so we see that Jesus in this sign is a better Moses. And thirdly, what's the meaning of this sign? Well, lastly, it's to point out to the unbeliever the power of Christ to heal. It's to point to the unbeliever the power of Christ. Remember why this book is written. This book is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so this sign stands as a bulwark to the unbeliever, reminding them the same thing that the Apostle Peter says in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. This miracle stands as an invite for everyone who is in darkness under the power of the evil one to hear Christ tell them to wash in his spirit who was sent to do this very thing. It stands as a command to the world to let Christ perform this healing upon them. Nothing else can do this. There is no substitute for the Lord Jesus. There's no other person that can do this for them. There is no other thing that can do this for them than the the Lord Jesus and him alone. The remainder of the chapter tells us in no uncertain terms uh, very clearly that your learning will not save you. Your, your great education will not give you sight. Your religiosity will not give you sight. And as a matter of fact, you read the rest of the, the passage, the more you get the idea that the more religious you are outside of Christ, the worse your blindness is. Your status and position will not act as a substitute for Jesus. Your neighbors won't stand up for you. Your friends and your family even won't stand for you in the place of Jesus. No one else can give you sight other than the God-man, Jesus Christ. And if he doesn't heal you, you remain blind. And what's worse is that to the unbelieving world, it shouts to us, that they contribute to their continued blindness. And just as it is among the works of God to heal this man, so too it is the work of God that you believe in the one whom he has sent. This miracle here is is written here to put the world on notice, as it were, 
that in view of all of our accomplishments, in view of everything that humanity has attained, in, in view of, I mean, imagine this, we're debating how to go to Mars and set up a colony on Mars, in view of all of our great accomplishments, we will never achieve the ability to overcome and conquer sin or any of its effects. And we can see this very clearly with the man's blindness. This is here to force the believer, the unbeliever rather, to a confrontation. It's to charge the world with blindness and to tell them that Christ is the only one who can do anything about it. So take of him, and he will make of you someone who can see. We've seen tonight that when Jesus heals the man who was born blind, he displays the works of God that he will eventually display in everyone who's going to call upon his name. I have a couple of applications uh, to conclude us for tonight. Firstly, brothers and sisters, know that you have in Christ one who has opened your eyes and who has uh, given for you to see. Know that you have in Christ someone who has opened your eyes and who has made you to see. At one point, you were blind. As a matter of fact, the Bible in the rest of the New Testament, uh, tells us something far worse. Uh, the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, says, at one time you were darkness. It doesn't say you were blind. It says you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord, and so walk as children of the light. Each of us, brothers and sisters, have had the eyes of our heart enlightened uh, to the knowledge of Christ. Each of us have had this work done upon us. The Lord Jesus has approached us and, this, uh, and his word has, has, and he's washed us with his spirit. Uh, so, brother, sister, know and trust that this work has been done with you. And I would argue, in fact, that it's more difficult to produce a Christian than it is to give someone physical sight. I say this uh, because with the one, you're dealing with some sort of physiological um, ailment, some sort of physiological defective condition, something like that. But in the other, you're dealing with a strictly spiritual condition. You're dealing with the power of sin in a cold and hardened heart. It does take a physician who could possibly cure the one, but it takes the work of God alone to cure the other. Brother, sister in Christ, this is what's been done with you. His work in you has been completed He's given you the Spirit as a down payment until the very last day. And so firstly, know that you have in Christ and be assured that you have in Christ one who has opened your eyes. Secondly, now that you've been made to see, you're to have this new perspective upon the world with your new eyes. Now that you have been made to see, you're to take upon yourself a new perspective upon the world with your new eyes, which is to say that since... Christ has given you new eyes with which to see. It behooves you as a child of God uh, to be trained into the perspective of life and literally everything that reflects God's perspective of life and everything and not just take upon ourselves the perspective of life and everything that the world wants us to take upon ourselves. In other words, we're given new eyes. Use them. Use them to see. Use them to see things the way that God sees them. 
this means that similarly to this man here who could apprehend the world through one of the senses that's been dormant for literally his entire life, we're to see the world differently, and I'd even say this more colorfully. We're to see the world differently and more colorfully than merely upon the world's terms. This means that you are to view the world as a Christian through and through. That there's nothing about your life and there's nothing about your experiences that's neutral territory anymore. All of life is to be uh, seen through the lens of the Lord Jesus and fealty to him. Nothing that uh, can remain untouched by the revealed will of God. To us who are in Christ, everything is to be viewed through the lens of the agenda of the kingdom of God. And so what does this look like? Well, we can certainly um, extrapolate upon this for a long, long time, but what does this uh, look like in day-to-day reality? Well, for one, it looks like patience, and it looks like persistence in prayer, a resoluteness in the face of what otherwise looks like God doesn't hear you. It looks like readiness to confess and repent of sin, not hiding behind some sort of bravado like the world would have us do. It looks like long-range optimism. This is what it looks like to view the world in a Christian lens. It looks like long-range optimism, knowing with full assurance of the victory of Jesus in the face of an entire culture that has by and large rejected God and his will and has made shipwreck of countless lives because of it. It looks like endurance under trial, knowing that that in spite of the fact that I'm beaten down and that injustice has been done to me, God will vindicate me, at least in the last day, if not here and now. I will be vindicated, and so I have to have endurance under trial. It looks like steadiness and regularity. This is what it means to have a perspective, a God's eye perspective, so to say, of the world that we can see with our new eyes, steadiness and regularity, knowing that God is doing something with me in the worship service, and that's why I'm here. I need to be here under the means of grace that God has given to me. And of course, we can go on for a very long time, but this is a little bit of what it means to see the world with new eyes that are given to you. So brother, sister in Christ, look at the world with the eyes that are given you by Christ. We can even say, take this yoke upon you in the change of your perspective. Look at the world with the perspective of the new eyes that you've been given in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven,